Dear beloved brothers and elders and dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, before we begin, let's inshallah please move forward. Inshallah, the brothers in the back can keep on coming forward here. There's a lot of space on this side and this side, inshallah. We're still in our sufuf. If you can, inshallah, move forward away from our sufuf and sit the way we sit usually uh, back to back next to each other. This will be better. And so the brothers from outside also can feel encouraged to join us here. It is definitely so nice and I'm sure overwhelming for all of us to, to, to be able to perform Salat al-Fajr outside of Ramadan in such great numbers. Alhamdulillah. All the way till the very back in the lobby and sides lobbies as well. Alhamdulillah. So this is a, a, a it's huge blessing to be part of such a large jama'ah. And we know many people arrived here last night at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And of course those who were here earlier also slept very late. So this session inshallah will not be very long. Uh, and after Ishraq... This is the sunnah, is that we sit after Salat al-Fajr in contemplation and dhikr in the remembrance of Allah. Uh, and then until after sunrise, about 15 minutes or so after sunrise, we get a chance to perform our nafil salat of Salat al-Ishraq, make dua, and then we can all rest before we uh, have a beautiful, long, busy day ahead of us. So I'm uh, very happy here to, alhamdulillah, have Monana Justin and Monana Yusuf with me, uh, who come from very different backgrounds, from different parts of the country, graduated from different years, um, have different uh, journeys, but still are extremely, extremely close friends, and alhamdulillah are uh, um, very connected in the fields that they are both in. So we would like to, the purpose of this session here is simply to give all those hundreds of youth who are here and who are listening online, as well as parents, to kind of see what is the journey of a Muslim, American Muslim who is uh, an average student in high school or college. How does he end up from there to being an imam or being a teacher in a madrasa or an Islamic school or so forth. It's a journey that many uh, have contemplated, many have thought of, but are completely unaware of how does that journey look like. And so the purpose of having this session here is to give us a little glimpse into the life of an, uh, of an average American Muslim who takes on this journey, and alhamdulillah, uh, see where that goes and see if we can trace that as well. So inshallah, Mananda Justin, inshallah, you can get started. Um, just kind of quickly, inshallah, I know before we get to uh, Madrasa, just your own journey of accepting Islam and uh, a few key moments of that that, of course, the crowd would love to learn about. Uh, and then from Baltimore onwards to here, how, does that, how did that work, inshallah? Where did, you, where, did that, where did the desire from not only accepting Islam, but beyond that, going into studies, uh, inshallah, if you could share that journey, that would be great. Uh, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi My name is uh, Justin. Uh, Dr. Al-Dim had uh, introduced me. Um, so I, I accepted Islam when I was 20. Uh, I was in college at the time. Um, uh, long journey of just you know being confused about my deen, being a Christian before that. Um, having read the Quran, uh, answered a lot of the questions I had about my deen, about uh, deen being generally about religion. Um, not understanding the Trinity, not understanding how um, God could be uh, come into a human form, a'udhu billah. Um, so after reading the Qur'an, 
uh, answer a lot of my questions, alhamdulillah. Um, and soon after I took the shahada, about six months later, and I was still in college, and long story short, finished college, uh, graduated, and a uh, local opportunity opened up um, at uh, Islamic Society of Baltimore, um, also known as ISB or Masha Rahma, some of the brothers, or the brothers from Baltimore, we're all from there, or around that area. Um, and uh, my main teacher was Sheikh Yassin Sheikh, who's uh, he's the uh, imam, resident imam there now. Um, so he opened a, a madrasa. I didn't know, understand the concept of the madrasa at the time, but I was thinking about going overseas to learn Arabic, because as a convert, I think a lot of converts have this, uh, this sentiment where once they accept Islam, they're coming from usually from Christianity. They don't know anything about their religion. They don't have any of the main sources. They can't read the main sources. No one knows Greek, no one knows Hebrew. So uh, having read the Quran and accepted Islam, and want to know what the Quran meant, right, in its original language, in Arabic. So I thought about going overseas, but alhamdulillah, a local opportunity opened up with Sheikh Yassin, uh, opened up a madrasa that was supposed to be six years. Uh, turned out it's only four years, and he had to move back for family reasons uh, to England. He's originally from England. So uh, that gave me the opportunity also to travel, alhamdulillah. So uh, it was a group of four of us. One of the, there was a sister with us, and she had passed away, rahimahullah. Um, but uh, three of us left, so I went to, or came here. I came to Dar es Salaam, alhamdulillah. Um, one of my classmates who's here, Mufti Sukhatullah, he went to uh, Dar al New York. Um, but after uh, graduating from here, alhamdulillah, um, benefiting from all my teachers and uh, from the community, you know, being, you know, of course, Mufti Aldeem, all my teachers, and Mawla Yusuf, mashallah, uh, and staying connected with the brothers here. Uh, I stayed back for an additional year for, for studies at Dar al Qasim, and after that, I applied to Zaytuna's master's degree. Um, in the Kanama Fellows of a track, or the theology and philosophy track, and then uh, went there. First year was, a COVID, was, was COVID, so I got to stay home, alhamdulillah. That was nice, because I'm also married, so I didn't have to move again. Uh, and then after that, uh, I did have to go to Berkeley, so I went to Berkeley for a year, um, spent my time there, I graduated, and now I work full-time with uh, Brandeis University, which is in Boston. Um, it's remote, and it's through an organization called ACIPTI. It's American Society for Islamic Theology and Philosophy, so you can look it up, ACIPTI.org. And I also teach part-time at Inc. And that's uh, who we're here. So I have the sticker here. So Inc., you know, the madrasa that we came from, inshallah. Jazakallah. Mashallah. Um, amazing. Uh, so one thing you mentioned is that your, a lot of your questions got answered after reading the Quran. Um, and so when did you read the Quran exactly? Um, I was around 20. Yeah, so still as a, as a non-Muslim? Yeah, still as a non-Muslim, yeah. And recited, you know, read through the translation cover to cover? Yep. So anything you want to share with our born Muslim audience about that, the importance of reading the Qur'an. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how I was introduced to the Qur'an though, because the Qur'an was introduced in a, uh, a world religions class, and I still remember the professor, his name's Dr. Roger Bridges at Stevenson University, I don't know if he still teaches there, but he forced us to read a section of the Qur'an, it was part of the, um, part of the curriculum, and after having read that section, I ended up just buying my own copy. And you know, having read the Quran, it was the use of Ali translation, which I still, you know, still beloved to me, even though it's like the archaic language. Uh, but you know, that was the first thing I read, so and I thought it was very beautiful. And you know, just entering you know concepts like Tawheed was very Tawheed and Nabuwa. That was the main things for me because the way the Christians and the Jews understand Nabuwa is very different from how we do. And they attack the the prophets, Billah, They have no concept of Isma. Um, so reading the Quran, you're seeing how Allah Subhanahu speaks about His beloved prophets and how He speaks about himself, that answers so many questions for me. And I think Muslims, you know, whether we know Arabic or don't, um, you should strive to learn Arabic, be able to understand the Quran. Um, and of course, study with teachers, right? Don't, you know, try to do this on your own. Um, but also just reading a translation if that's all you have. Because being staying connected with the Quran is the most important thing for a Muslim's life. 
right? So the Quran is the answer to a lot of your questions. The Quran is what should be a daily word of your life. You should be reading a juz, if not a juz. If not more than a juz, then, you know, a few pages, at least a page, you know, whatever is manageable for you. You know, in the morning after Fajr, in the evening, you know, whenever you have time, you should always be st uh, staying connected to the Quran. Jazakallah khairan. Manana, can you share your journey as well? So you're from, originally from Baltimore, right, Manana? Born and raised. And you can go ahead, inshallah. You're from Florida, so your whole life been in Florida? Okay, inshallah. Rahim. As Mufti Alim said, my name is Yusuf. Um, I'm from Florida. I'm from Miami. I was pr primarily raised in Miami most of my life. Um, Miami is very different than Chicago. It's not the same as you could probably assume. I can count on two hands the amount of hufal that are there still in Miami proper. So it's a very different environment. Um, so this desire to learn ilm or to this desire to first become hibs is not uh, to become hafiz rather is not something that organically came from me it's not something that stemmed from the environment either uh, this credit is due to my parents first and foremost to my father to ingraining this love of hibs and of the Quran primarily, primarily through my father and the du'as of my mother there was a lot of ups and downs it wasn't easy memorizing the Quran many people might not know this but it took me about eight years to actually memorize the entire Quran a lot of ups and downs I was the only student uh, there was no one else and at that time, I didn't know any of the hafiz in my area. So it was, a, it was a difficult journey, ups and downs, going through teenage life. It wasn't always easy. But due to the constant effort of my father and the du'as of my mother, alhamdulillah, I completed. Actually, completed, officially completed earlier, but I consider myself hafiz. Actually, on the day my father was born, on his birthday, actually, right before I joined the Islam, like about two months before. So it took a long time. But in that process, with, again, like Ma'al Justin said, we're connecting to the Quran when I was 15, when I started to, I started to get a little bit more serious about it. And I said, you know what, let me try reading the translation of the Quran while I memorize it as well. Maybe it will help me out. So I started doing that for the last 10 ajzat. And again, that started to bring something in my heart. Like, hey, I kind of want to do a little bit more than just memorize. So that's when it started clicking, that reciting the translation of the Quran. And I read Mufti Azhar Hussain Ilyas' translation. That was readily available right there. So reading that translation and memorizing the Quran, it kind of sparked my interest. So that was on one hand. And the other uh, very pivotal factor is definitely, definitely is jama'at al-tabliq. You guys have all heard of tabliq. You guys have maybe there's different spectrums of opinions on tabliq. I personally, when I was younger, I did not like tabliq. I used to run away from them. But then somehow, somewhere, I joined tabliq, went out for three days just to chill. That's how my intention was. But I started really liking the effort. And I started to go, I started to go. My friends started joining. And that's when I started traveling a little bit more across Florida, meeting other ulama, meeting other hafal. And then somewhere along that line, 16, 17, you know, I told myself, I told my father that, you know, I kind of want to go do this alim course thing. I had no idea what that meant. All I knew is that if you go to alim course, you get to know the Quran. My dad was supportive. He said, whatever you do, make sure you excel at it. That's all that matters, right? That's all that matters. So he's always been supportive of me since I was young, both my parents, alhamdulillah. Especially coming from an environment where you don't have like, you know, over here, every other person, you go out to eat, you might meet five hafal. You drive down the street, you'll see turbans and niqabs. Right? It's not like that in Miami, and it still isn't. Um, alhamdulillah, so my intention was to actually go to South Africa. My friend and I, he was a year above me in high school, so he decided to go, of course, a year before me. I was supposed to join him next year, but then I remember meeting Mufti Azimuddin on Super Bowl night. I did not want to meet him, actually. I wanted to go watch the Super Bowl. But uh, my Amir Saab at that time, Alibai, he's actually here. Uh, he said, no, you have to go meet him. And he forced me to go meet him. 
And I'm like, okay, I'll go for like 10 minutes, meet him real quick, and I'll go back to the game. Um, well, that conversation ended up being two hours, and I was set on South Africa. But after meeting him, I was very confused, to say the least. I didn't know what to do. Where should I go? Everyone was telling me South Africa, Mufti Aldin gave me a different perspective of why I should come to Dar es Salaam. I went for Umrah actually two days after that. I did a Sahara. Then I came for the first retreat that they ever had here. My father and I, and a friend of ours, family friend, we came for the first retreat. And ever since then, we've been attending every single retreat, alhamdulillah. So that's how I came to Dar es Salaam, studied over here. Back then, mothers was a lot smaller. You'd never see this much people for the retreat at Fajr Talks. Um, so I wasn't expecting this many people for Fajr. Um, so you'd see like three, four lines maybe. Then I stayed here, alhamdulillah, finished by seven years. I've met a lot of wonderful people in the process, Brother Justin, our teachers, and a lot of other wonderful people. And then afterwards, uh, through his recommendation actually, I also decided to go join Zaytuna. So I only graduated last year, so I'm finishing up my first year's and master's program in Zaytuna. Along with that, I'm also doing a, a serving as an imam in a local community over there. And I just finished my first semester, and then I came over, first year, and I just came over here, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. So it's completely different parts of the country, different beginnings. And now one thing besides that is their uh, passion for ilmul kalam and Islamic philosophy is something that keeps these two awake probably on many nights together. <laughs> different, what, three-hour time zone, right? Uh, time difference. But uh, spending many nights talking to one another, discussing different uh, obscure concepts of, of Islamic philosophy. So alhamdulillah, it's amazing to see how uh, this has brought two individuals from various backgrounds together. Now, um, I want to see is that, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a place where you are right now in your life, is this something, let's say, 10 years ago, did both of you kind of see yourselves in this position? The answer probably would be no. Um, so now that you are on this specific, on this specific path, what, kind of, what do you kind of see for your own future and future of your families? Uh, so, uh, I guess my, for my future, um, right now, what I'm hoping to do is bring a lot of what I learned at Zaytuna back into the Madaris. A lot of what we learned in the in the MA program was originally in our Madaris system, right? So, it's the texts, the methodology, um, the uh, scrutiny of texts, um, just the rigor. So, bring that back into the methodology. Um, so hopefully bringing that back into our, our curriculum and at Inc, inshallah, you know, rebuild or building that Madrasa system, you know, similar, similar to what we have here, inshallah. Um, Baltimore is, you know, very unlike Miami as well. Um, there are a lot of Muslims, a huge number of Muslims in, in Baltimore, and you do actually see like, you know, Niqabis walking around on the street. Not everywhere, that's not like here, but it, you know, it's, alhamdulillah, it's quite populated. So uh, trying to build that community there and, um, you know, everything that I've learned here from my, my teachers, uh, bringing that to Inc building that community, I think that's what, what I guess my short-term goal would be, inshallah. <clears throat> what he said as well, bringing that, um, reviving, I don't want to use the word reviving, that's a bad word, but reconnecting ourselves back to a tradition of Islamic philosophy and theology. People might think like, you know, you have young men and women that go to college and universities and think, oh my God, look at all these advanced philosophical concepts. Well, all, all of that is in our books. All of that is in our books. And it's only, we only to blame ourselves if we are not aware of those um, concepts and that tradition. So like you said, no, one of the number one goals, that's what we talk a lot, is to bring that, those philosophical concepts and tradition 
bring it back into a madaris system, not just here, Dar es Salaam, Inc., across all the madaris in North America, inshallah ta'ala, that's one of the intentions. Uh, personally, another goal of mine is to eventually go back to Miami, Florida, and um, start doing khidma over there, start to help the community over there. So that's one of the initial goals of why we, I even went out to study. And that goal hasn't changed, and inshallah ta'ala, one day go back there. So you have, uh, you're an imam as well, and you have some responsibilities with the community, you're teaching, all right? So when you're, when you're discussing, again, advanced master's level topics of ilm al-kalam and Islamic philosophy, uh, and then you come back to the community and then give a post-Isha, that's in a post-Fajr talk, you know, you're going through a, a huge d difference of uh, um, the, the degree of, um, you know, discussion changes big time when you're, when you're speaking to the general community. So, how, you know, tell me how does that, you know, interplay take place when you sit down with average people? Because then there's an imam, someone's going to come to you and say, hey, you know what, I just, um, fortunately, just had an argument with my spouse, I said something which I shouldn't say, what's the issue of this? Is this, uh, have I divorced her or whatnot? That's your normal question. Someone is wondering, hey, I'm having a very hard time waking up for Salat al-Fajr, give me some tips. Right? Someone else saying, I'm suffering from certain types of addictions, can you please help me? These are questions that as imams and as um, in the eyes of the people, scholars, we will always be faced with, and things of that sort. And then you have this very strong academic rigor that you went through and are making your students going through. So how do you see them complement one another? Um, <clears throat> I think the only thing we can say is we look at the example of Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam. He said, كَلِمُ النَّاسَ عَلَىٰ عَقُولِهِمْ عَلَىٰ قَدْرِ عَقُولِهِمْ That you speak to people according to their levels and their intelligence. You're not going to speak to one person who's coming to you about a talaq or a nikah question. You're not going to sit there talking about philosophy. Right? It doesn't make sense. That's wrong. That's inappropriate. So likewise, as an individual, again, quote-unquote alim, I'd rather say we're certified students of knowledge. I think that's a better term for us. An alim is somebody who has spent decades with ilm, decades serving the community. But as a certified student of knowledge, I think it's very important that we have two different spectrums or two different uh, avenues of khidmah. Number one is academics itself, ilm. An alim is somebody that does ilm. An alim is someone that engages in ilm. So an alim has to continuously engage in ilm, never, never, never give up his books, never give up, give up his reading. Because even if it does not benefit anybody itself, as Imam Malik rahimahullah said, he said that, ma ta'allamtu li ghayri. Right? I didn't learn for anybody else. And I didn't learn so that people need me. He learned for himself. So this is a personal thing that we continues to continue to engage in ilm at a highest level, at the highest rigor as, as possible. And in, 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 of the, in of itself, inshallah, we hope to be from amongst the tulaba, uh, the seekers of knowledge. That's one aspect. But that should not keep ourselves in our echo chamber and just sitting up there talking to ourselves over coffee. We have to realize that the ground reality and the ground, uh, what needs to be done on the ground is a lot of work. So we have to keep ourselves connected through the general populace. And it's not uh, mutually exclusive, and it's not contradictory in any way, because that's something that a person will do on the private level. Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam, even in Surah Shah, Allah Azza wa mentions that you know, when you're finished with your day work, when you finish all of that, then tabattal, then you go to Allah Azza wa Jalla. Then you turn to Allah, farhat, turn to Allah Azza wa Jalla. So it's two different things, two different roles of Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam. All day he's doing da'wah, and all night he's doing dhikr. So it's two different aspects of Nabi Alaihi life. So as people, students of knowledge, we have to continue to engage in our ilm. At the same time, we cannot forget our community. And that's why he's teaching in a madrasa, and I'm, I'm doing imamat on the side. Because engaging the community allows, gives you a reality check, 
and boosts you to continue to engage in ilm because you realize how important it is as you start engaging and discussing with people. Very good. Um, you know, you have you had your four years you studied was part time, correct? Full time, full time. Were you working at that time? I wasn't. You can put them. Yeah, I was in the evening. It was like uh, two to six. So what was your schedule looking like? Uh, so we uh, started at uh, 8, so it'd be 8 till Lohar, so about um, one thirty or so. And okay. then uh, we'd have Lohar, the masjid, and then I would go to work from 2 to 6. SubhanAllah. Okay, so 8 to 1, studying, and then 2 to 6, trying to support yourself. Were you already married at that time? Uh, yeah, I was. Okay. So remember, this is a convert who's going to the local masjid to study with a scholar from 8 a.m. to 1, and then afterwards as a paralegal, working from 1 to 6 to support himself, and then probably studying after that. Yeah, in the evenings. <laughs> in the yeah. evenings. Um, so it's, it's such an amazing uh, journey that for all who are yani, uh, thinking that, w how do I study? It's You and I have to decide that if we want to study, where there's a will, there's a way. You have to make it happen. You really have to make it happen. Just seeing people who are um, teaching advanced Islamic sciences after having accepted Islam at uh, you know, 20 years of not knowing Allah, 20 years of not knowing kalima, 20 years of not reading a single verse of the Qur'an in Arabic, right? Think about that. There's many youth over here. You might be thinking that, man, I'm, I'm really far away from the deen. But how old are you? You're 19, you're 20, you're 21. You've already prayed Jummah hundreds of times. You've prayed Salah hundreds of times. Yeah, you're not where you want to be. But imagine where you already, what, what type of background you have. Here we have this brother who's in his 20, who hasn't, has no exposure to Islam. And then he doesn't allow his, 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 his being far away from the deen to slow him down. He puts on this afterburners and mashallah jumps right in and uh, achieves his college education, achieves his job, is married and continues his study of ilm. So this is something I feel like our youth need to understand that you, there's no such thing as one or the other. For 100% we can take both. You can have your education in a university, you can have your job, but that does not mean you should remain ignorant of your deen. Every single one of us needs to truly know our, ourselves, our Allah, our deen, and become confident Muslims. Um, otherwise, what will happen is, if we don't know it, what's going to happen to the next generation? Because we're already like first or second generation over here, and we see a huge gap. And by the time the next generation grows up, unfortunately, we're going to have a, you know, a, ma a major problem. So you did your four years there, and then you came here did the final two years. And Mulan Yusuf, I mean, you did the two, from beginning to end over here. So I would, if you can classify the Alim program, you could probably have like, you could say maybe three sections of it, or maybe you could classify it differently. But I was thinking that maybe your first year here, which is known as the Tanweer program, um, and you were probably the third batch or fourth batch of, right, of Tanweer students, or fifth batch, okay. So you have this one-year program, the Tanweer program, that's one part of your phase. And then you have like years two to four, uh, or two to six, and then you have definitely year seven. Maybe just for the audience, inshallah, if you can kind of explain the different parts of, of a student's journey in these three sections. So the first, as Mufti Saab mentioned, that we're talking specifically about Dar Salaam, is the first year is the one-year program. So one-year program, as it says, it's an intensive. You have five classes in Arabic and five classes in Islamic studies. Those Islamic studies include fiqh, uh, aqidah, spirituality, and tajweed, and some other sciences. So... I think back then it was a longer program as well. It was in the day. It was, it was very, very, very tiresome, right? But it was very well worth it. Um, in my year, I think at that time we had the largest class, about I think 33 students, and I think 32 of us graduated. Um, you ask every single one of those students afterwards, not a single person regrets it. Even though 
from their peers, they were now a year behind in college. They're a year behind in everything. But not a single person regrets taking that year off because of the fact that they built bonds for the rest of their life. And those people are people that I'm still connected with uh, till this day, um, seven years later. Even though they didn't continue, there are people that we have connected with and we continue to remain as very good friends. So that first year was a, uh, it's more of a cultural shock for me coming from Miami, seeing all this, knowing that, oh wow, there's, you know, Islam existed beyond 30 years ago, right? Islam wasn't just something with our parents. Islam is something a lot more large. It's something that existed for thousands to hundreds of years and we have this huge tradition in front of us. And so it was very, uh, it was scary, but at the same time very exciting because there was this long journey in front of you. And like, I still have a lot more to do, you know? Let's say if you go on a vacation, the first day, it's, you, you know you have another two weeks left of vacation, so you're excited, right? Versus the last day, you're like, oh man, it's all over now, right? So right at the beginning, it's very exciting knowing there's so much to go in front of. And then you have the next, uh, next stage that Mufti Saab mentioned. I would slightly change it to like from second to like fourth year. Second or fourth year, second or fifth year, you're still learning. You're still learning the ropes. You're learning the basics of Arabic. You're learning the basics of all the sciences. Once you get to fifth, sixth, seventh year is when you start now seeing that, okay, now this is where you really understand, like, okay, what ilm is. You're still just, you're still like, uh, in the first year, you're drowning, okay? Now in second, fourth year, now you're floating. In fifth, sixth, seventh year, if you work hard, that's when you start swimming. And that's when you start seeing that, wow, there's so much to do. And we've only, we have only touched the tip of the iceberg. In first year, you think you're at the tip of the iceberg. You're not anywhere near the iceberg. When you get to seventh year, now you're at the tip of the iceberg. And so that realization hits really quickly after the first three, four years. You start to realize that ilm does a lot more to do in ilm. And that we really haven't um, grasped a lot more. Uh, uh, we really haven't grasped much more than we actually think we did. That's why I say we're certified students of knowledge. To become a true alim, somebody who does ilm, it takes decades of work. Decades of work. But this, when you go through these seven years, what you have done now is that you connected yourself to a perennial tradition. You're connected yourself to to a tradition that has thousands of teachers and students of knowledge. You've connected yourself to thousands of ulama and thousands of books. So now you're not just any random person that's picked up the book on, on, in the corner of the masjid. No, you have teachers, you have a pedagogy, and you have a lineage of ilm, and a, an intellectual lineage. And so that, that allows you to continue to progress under the guidance of your teachers. And that's a lifelong journey. And that doesn't end until we die. And uh, it might even continue afterwards. And that's Allah tawfiq. Um, so, well, Justin, I wanted you to kind of speak about um, the. Uh, so, he spoke about the journey of the student of knowledge in a madrasa. Now, student of knowledge in a madrasa, and then from there moving on to university. Very, a lot of parents think that, oh, subhanAllah, there is, uh, my son is getting into a bachelor's program of Islamic studies in my local university or uh, a, a very famous university in Chicago that is, or, or beyond Chicago as well that's got an Islamic studies program so this is exactly what we walked away from the retreat thinking that we should study ilm we should become ulama we should become scholars so enrolling in an Islamic studies program a four year, six year, eight year program at university is the same thing I want you to explain your take on that is it the same thing or it's not if it's not then like what is the difference first of all please do not enroll these programs. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm connected with PhDs and academics. Please do not enroll in these programs. You are not going to learn Dean. That's, a, that's, that's the last thing you're going to learn is Dean from these uh, you know, so-called scholars. Okay, they're PhDs, academics. You're not going to learn your Dean from them. Okay, I can tell you 100% you're going to learn your Dean from ulama. They're not ulama. 
Some of them have like ulamat, you know, Islamic training. Some of them may be graduates, but university changes you. When you speak to them, you sit down with them, they have a very different outlook on what Islam is. That's not the deen that you want to take. That's not, you know, you, uh, as we know, this deen, right, is our life way. It's, it's, our, it's our way, and we have to look very carefully at whom we're taking the deen from. So don't take it from academics, okay? I'm telling you now. Now, if you think that getting a you know, master's or a PhD in Islamic studies is going to get you a job, maybe it will as an academic, but you're going to have to give up so much. You're going to have to assent to so many things. You're not going to be able to speak your mind. If you're going to say that I believe in Allah, I believe in his messenger, they're not going to accept that from you. What they're going to accept it from you is LGBTQ. They're going to accept the fact that you want, they want you to change your deen and to speak that. They don't want you to speak Islam, okay? I'm telling you this from experience. Working you know, with you know, um, pious brothers who are now in that field and they're telling me that you know, it's very different. You know, they went in with a good intention. Some of them came out, you know, sadiq. Some of them didn't, right? Some of them left Islam after, you know, graduating from these programs. That's not how you get your deen. You get your deen traditionally. And that's the only way. This is our heritage. It's our lineage. And it's our pedagogy, as Mawlana Yusuf said. You get your deen from traditional ulama and from a traditional setting. Now, maybe that's full-time. Maybe that's part-time. That's, you know, that's up to your, your own circumstances. But the only way that you get deen is from traditional ulama. So, now, the, um, actually, I know of an of individual who's uh, an Islamic organization who erroneously thought <laughs> studying at an Islamic university will graduate him as a scholar and he'll come back and serve. So they paid for his entire PhD program. And then he, came, he, became, he, became, he left Islam. Astaghfirullah. You know, he, they sent him to go study and come back and teach them. He ended up leaving the deen. So it's, it's um, something that parents aren't aware of, it seems like, nowadays. And they equate it as studying in madrasa is the same thing as studying at university. Big difference is those who are teaching at university do not regard what they're teaching as revelation. They do not regard it as wahi. It's no matter what amazing Quranic verse you discuss or um, a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, this is just a piece of literature. That's it. It's a man-made literature. And so there's nothing um, divine about it at all. So if there's nothing divine about it, my salvation doesn't depend on it then uh, like how can I ever expect to get any guidance from it? So now you went on to uh, do your masters in, in, in uh, Zaytuna. And interestingly, Maulana Justin finished his university degree before coming here at college, then did Alam course, then went on to Zaytuna's master's program. Maulana Yusuf actually from high school came directly over here. Um, and after seven years over here, directly went into the master's program. So Zaytuna accepted the Alam program as a... Um, bachelors uh, and it allowed him to enter in the master's program and some some of our graduates have gone into like master's program at in Malaysia as well so let's uh, one one of you whoever would like to address that what's the um, a journey like that how does you know Islamic Zaytuna University the Islamic studies program or the master's program specifically you're in how is that different from say any other liberal arts college or any other Islamic studies department in a liberal arts college um. So my bachelor's was in a liberal arts college, so it wasn't in Islam, right? So it was in English. Um, and then after coming here and spending you know, my time here or in Baltimore and then here, um, alhamdulillah, I mean, this gives you, let's put it this way. So Darsan prepares you, way over prepares you for the masters at Zaytuna, okay? And so I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade on you know, my alma mater, right? So you know, where I graduated from, but you know, uh, a traditional you know, madrasa curriculum over prepares you for more or less any like master PhD you're going to do in Islamic studies, okay? So the same thing at Zaytuna. Um, Zaytuna though, it was, uh, 
looking back, of course, I learned a lot, and you know, my teachers there were very, you know, pious teachers, and you know, um, I have a very strong affiliation with them. So, like Dr. Jawad Qureshi, you may have heard some of these Sheikh Mashuk Shniyamach, um, Sheikh Talal Ahdab. Um, but going from this environment to that environment wasn't too radical for me because I had some, you know, I had been in uh, in college before, so um, you know, it is a liberal arts degree, so it's not they're not producing scholars; they're just producing students of, uh, of knowledge who are trained in a particular field, either the usul al-fiqh track or the kalam falsafa track from the master's program. Um, and that's what you know. And that's what you come out, you come out with the knowledge. You don't necessarily come out with, you know, an understanding, a proper understanding of Islam. That's not what they're teaching, right? So it is ultimately a liberal arts college. Um, so I guess that's, let's just leave it there. Maybe you can, maybe you can, you can elaborate on that a little bit if you want, because it's your first year here, just kind of the change. Uh, and then specifically comparing the Dasa Nizami curriculum to the final product, say, of coming out of a university compared to a, a Dasa Nizami curriculum. Because there's a lot of questions that people have. What do I go study in a madrasa? Certification. Big question. Um, do you actually learn anything if you're not certified with a master's or PhD come graduating from a madrasa? When will a, 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 my local madrasa get accredited? If it's not accredited, if it's even, is it, do I even bother sending my kids or myself studying there? if I'm not going to walk away with an accredited degree. So this whole curriculum, compared to what you're studying in university, a little bit, uh, so you can shed some light on that. Um, <clears throat> coming back to just this point before getting on to that, I think the key difference between Zaytuna and any other, or any other academic institution that provides an Islamic studies degree, first of all, it's not an Islamic studies degree, and secondly, almost every single one of the teachers there, their primary education is through traditional studies. Mm. So that's the key difference. They traditionally studied and then went on to get masters or PhDs in universities. All our teachers, actually half our teachers in specifically the philosophy track, they don't have, they don't even have a bachelor's degree. They just studied like 15 years traditionally. They don't have what again? They don't even have a bachelor's degree. Oh, so bachelor's? Yeah, not even a bachelor's. Oh. So they just studied 15 years traditionally in Syria, Turkey, India, different places, and they teach in the master's program. So that just shows, that I think is sufficient to tell that studying traditionally gives you the strength and the ability way beyond anyone else in any other, um, any other type of study. Studying, studying traditionally, whether it's India, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's Turkey, Syria, wherever it may be, but studying through this lineage, it's the same books. If you look at it, it's the same books that everyone's doing. It's just different type of uh, different people from different places. So they all study traditionally. And even the teachers who have PhDs and even the ones who are teaching uh, in the master's program, they have all studied traditionally. So I think that itself answers the question. As for Zaytuna's program itself, the bachelor's is a bachelor's in liberal arts. They're not making scholars. They don't claim to make scholars. They're not saying they're making ulama. They're making people who are interested in deen. And afterwards, if they want to continue to study, they will continue to go study elsewhere. And they even say that their bachelor's program does not prepare them for the master's program. Right? Mm. So the master's and the bachelor's are two different things, I would say. And they say that uh, just doing the bachelor in Zaytuna does not prepare you for the masters. So the masters is a very specific thing. You're going there for a focus. We had an intent before to go learn uh, philosophy and logic and kalam and all these different things. It's probably one of the best places in America to do that. But we went in with a specific goal and that's, for, that's why we're there. MashaAllah. Um, you want to add anything about the, just the, the Dolphin Nadami program and the, what, what the answering about people's questions about accreditation. Um, how important is that to graduate with something? And how, what's the history of that? Was, was there this whole master's program, PhD program, these labels, and this accreditation process, um, how, how foreign or, is a, or how 
ingrained is that in the Islamic studies curriculum in the recent past? And is this, the, is this what you should be expected so before someone leads Salat al-Isha or Fajr? Hey bro, did you, do you have a master's program or not? Khalas, I don't want to pray Salah behind you. I mean, because there's such a huge emphasis. Where is this coming from? So um, the Western idea of accreditation is like, you know, giving you an ijazah, right? Essentially, that's what it is, right? So their ijazah system is completely different than our ijazah system. Right, so when they talk about accreditation, it's just to show that uh, are those graduates from that program, are they all at a particular level, are they graduating with a particular standard of knowledge? We have that. That's our ijazah system. That's graduating from a madrasa. That's graduating with a shahada uh, al-minya. Uh, so that is our accreditation, right? So, but you know, for a university, you know, the reason why everybody wants accreditation is eventually because you're now accredited to teach or to grant, right, uh, to uh, write grants, right? So if you have a PhD, then you're accredited from a university, you can go teach in a university. But is that the point? Is the point of all, all, of, us, all of us to go teach in a university? No, right? That's the last thing you should be, you know, think on your mind. So that's the first thing. If you have a, think about, I'm going to get a PhD in Islamic studies so I can teach in university. Okay, well, first of all, the likelihood of you getting that, that position is probably not there, and that's not what you want to do, okay? Second thing is that the reason why you get accreditation is so you can write grants. That's actually useful, though, okay? Now, we, now grants from, uh, grant authorize, or authorizing um, and funding institutions, you don't necessarily have to have a PhD because you usually have a PhD in order to uh, work at a university in order to get a grant that's given to your university so you can fund a program. But we can do that here, right? We just have to reach out to these you know, institutions if we want. So I mean, the accreditation idea, it's, it's this idea, we, it, we have this concept of accreditation in our mind just because we're absorbing it from a Western institution. We, we don't necessarily need accreditation. If you think you just need to understand what is the maqsad, what is the purpose behind accreditation, you realize that we don't really need it. So that's the first thing. And then uh, just to um, piggyback off of what Mala Yusuf was saying about uh, the texts, right? So in, uh, um, we had studied Hidayat al-Hikmah in uh, Zaytuna. That was, that's from our Darsani Islami. That was traditionally taught, right? Inshallah, we're bringing, we brought it back, alhamdulillah. Sharaqa uh, al-Nasafiyya, that's what we also studied there. That was, used, that was in our Darsani Islami. We studied, now we're bringing it back here. So uh, Nuwaqif was originally in Darshan Islami, and uh, that we were going to study, or you will study that, but um, I say that at um, Zaytuna. We're just bringing that back. So it's the same text. MashaAllah. So um, uh, that was Zakhlaqa for answering that. Now I would like to take a few minutes uh, to just ask the crowd if they have any questions about their journeys or specifically about what they studied or anything else. If you're, if you're an aspiring student of knowledge, um, we'd like to hear from you. Inshallah. Does anyone here have a question? Yes. First experience with the Quran. What was your first exposure to it? Because it's very interesting for me when I see reverts. They always talk about finding the truth in Islam, but it's more interesting for me to see how they came across the Quran and the way Allah gives them the hidayah to see it. Yeah, I mean the the main way was just through that class. I mean, um, I don't know if I would have picked. I think I read the Quran from my if my memory serves me, but I think I read the Quran one time before that it was like N.J. Daud. Um, I think he's actually uh, Jewish, but um, uh, Arab Jew. But I think he translated the Quran, and it put, actually put me off. But this was early. I was like 16. I was like, uh, I don't really understand this. It's a terrible translation, just by the way, just from an academic standpoint. But it's a terrible translation. Translation. So, but after having read the Quran from that class and then having bought my own, that was how I. Um, that's what drew me to Islam. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. What's Islamic philosophy? Yeah, that's a very important question. Um, so we have belief, 
in Allah Azza wa Jalla, and we have belief in His Prophets, and we have a belief about the hereafter. We have all these different beliefs. You can take all these beliefs and put them under one topic called Aqidah. Right? Raise your hands, who's heard of the term Aqidah? Okay, most of us heard Aqidah. Aqidah just means a set of beliefs. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. These are what you have to believe to enter into Jannah. That's what Aqidah is. Islamic philosophy, on the other hand, is a term that we call Ilmul Kalam. Islamic philosophy is taking those beliefs and establishing them rationally or textually. It's to take these beliefs and prove them. That why do we believe in God? What's the argument for God's existence? Why do we believe in Prophet Muhammad What's the argument for his truthfulness? Why do we know the Quran is haq? What's the argument for that? All these X, Y, A, B, C, D different sentences that we believe in, Ilmul Kalam or Islamic philosophy takes a rational approach to proving those things logically and systematically. And this field is known as Ilmul Kalam, Islamic philosophy, and this is a field that we've had for more than a thousand years. And, and it's not just us, the West has engaged with this for more than five to six hundred years. So it's a very deep and rich field, and it's very intellectually stimulating, but it's also very hard. So that's what Islamic philosophy is. I don't know if that answered your question. So if it's Islamic philosophy, what do you see? Let's just take that Islam out of that and studying philosophy or Islamic philosophy in university. Is that a good idea? Uh, no, because <laughs> the premise is already wrong. Right. Yeah, let's explain that because so, we know a lot of people very who are who who feel like you know what they're too smart for say just a, a normal math class. It's like you know what I want to I want to do something different. I am into philosophy. How many people if you ask the crowd will know people or themselves are intrigued by philosophy or it makes them feel they stand out from the crowd? What are you doing? I'm a major in philosophy. That sounds really intriguing. So what do you say about that? Okay, so modern academia is very different than how it was a couple hundred years ago. People used to do philosophy before, right? Before Immanuel Kant, I don't want to get too philosophical over here, right? But let's just say pre-Kant. Philosophy had one unfundamental, fundamental uh, premise. That reality exists and we can access reality. There's a world around us and we can access reality. Whereas philosophy today, it's whatever you think it exists. There's no reality, there's no access to it. It's just fun. Let's just engage in a little bit of philosophy. They don't believe in it, nor do they believe in what we call capital T truth. There's no objective truth. So when you go to philosophy class today, the first thing they will teach you is not to critically think. They're going to teach you doubt. Right? So everything starts from doubt and continues to progress there. So what type of foundation are you going to build? What type of conclusion are you going to reach if your foundation is based on doubt? Now this is a very simplified answer. Okay? It's after Fajr. I'm not trying to get philosophical right now. Very simple answer. If this is not sufficient for somebody, understandably, there's a lot more that I can say on this. We can speak on hours about this. But this is a very simple thing. Previously, even when non-Muslims were doing philosophy, they believed that they can access capital T truth. They're doing philosophy to reach the truth. Today, they're not doing philosophy to reach the truth. It's just pragmatism. What's practical? What's going to help us in a shahwa? Right? What's going to help us in our will, our nafs? We'll talk actually more about this on Sunday, inshallah ta'ala. So we'll take, um, uh, you want to say something? And we'll take two more questions after this, right? Inshallah, so just be ready, inshallah, two more questions. Okay. Just to, uh, it's interesting that, um, as Mawla used to saying, a thousand years ago, even non-Muslims, 500 years ago, they would also study philosophy. But their concept of philosophy is philosophy is the handmaid of theology. So philosophy is there in order to bolster theology. Today, there's no theology. Like if you go to a university and you're studying philosophy, there's no theology, there's no God, right? There's no concept of God. I mean, you'll uh, rationally analyze the concept of God. Why do people believe in this concept called God, right?
But ultimately, you're studying a philosophy that's based on skepticism. That's doubt, right? It's based on check. It's based on skepticism. So as Molly used to say, your conclusion will be skeptical. You start with skeptical premises or doubtful premises, you're going to get to a doubtful conclusion. That's the basis of modern philosophy. Beautiful. Okay, two questions. Yes. So the question is, in this pursuit of knowledge, uh, you've come across many obstacles. How do you uh, overcome that? MashaAllah, he's actually wanting to take time out and study the one year. He's married as well. May Allah make it easy for him. Of course, he's, he's dealing with that, speaking to his employer and things of that right now. So it's a very uh, practical question he's asking. In your pursuit of knowledge, you come across obstacles. How do you go about dealing and handling with those? I guess um, uh, Molly should probably have, you know, we all have our own obstacles, right? So, you know, my, my main obstacle was trying to work at the same time and study. So, um, alhamdulillah, I was able to work part-time and that was sufficient to, you know, more or less feed my family, right? Alhamdulillah. And, you know, I have my own situations as well. So just like you guys will have your own situations. Some of you may not be able to take a year off of work. But what you could do is save up. Save up enough money to take five to six years off. I don't, don't think this is mustabad. Like, this isn't far-fetched. I mean, if you save well and you invest your money well, you can easily save up enough money over five, 10 years and just take off six years of work. You know? make, make your own cup of coffee and not buy it, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Stop buying your know, $6 cup of, cups of coffee, okay? And do a pour over, nice pour over, you know, for 50 cents, inshallah. But, um, so that was my, one of my main obstacles, right? So alhamdulillah, Allah sponsor gave me the means where I was able to still work in a part, uh, part-time and, um, and that was sufficient. It was hard, I mean, I'm not gonna say it was easy, okay? going to work right after studying, you're exhausted, right? And it's because it's all intellectual work and then you're going doing more intellectual work in law. And then after that, you're at night, you know, you're telling your wife, like, I need to spend like at least two hours studying. It's hard, alhamdulillah, and I had a very supportive family. So, um, but don't think it's far-fetched. Like, you just have to, you know, make dua, make istikhara, do mashwara, like your family, you know, if, you have, uh, if you're married with your wife, and tell them, tell them that like, this is my plan. This is what I want to do, I'm serious about it. Whether it's one year, it's three years, four years, or I'm gonna take out a full six to seven years to do this, it's not, uh, it just seems like you can't, you, yeah. Just remember that anything's possible, okay? All this fun thing will make it easy, um, and just don't think it's far-fetched, because I met brothers and they're like, I can't do it, okay? But if you just, you know, uh, think about it, make a plan, then it's possible, inshallah. Okay, one more question, yes. Seven, you guys did your seven years at Dar es Salaam. Why would you guys go to Zaytuna and not to a different madrasa to build upon those seven years? What are you guys looking to get out of Zaytuna specifically rather than continue in a different madrasa to build on top of those seven years? Very good question. Okay. All right. Uh, so the main reason why we went to Zaytuna is because, uh, so we went with a very specific person, as Mala used to said. So, there were some texts and some uh, scientists, mainly Anwar Kanam and Anwar Falsafa, so um, theology and philosophy, that aren't taught anywhere else. As, as right now, they're not taught anywhere else in, in the United States. Um, so we knew that the teachers were there, um, you know, some of them being you know, more traditionally trained than others, but them having studied these t texts in such a way that they're qualified to teach them. So that was the main reason. So for instance, uh, going further than Hidat or Hikmah in philosophy, right? So this, you know, Traditionally, from our Darsan uh, Islami, these texts were studied to a much higher level even than what we do at Zaytuna. So going there, and at least getting that intermediate idea of these, these texts and these sciences and then going 
there to bring that back into the Madaris. That was my. That was the reason why I went. I think that was the same reason why Mawla Yusuf went. Yeah, for example, I had one Ustad who passed away, who after graduating from the Alim program and doing his takhassus in Izifta in Karachi, he spent four years just studying falsafa and logic. Four full-time years studying philosophy and logic. He was, uh, you know, a Pathan. He was in the, from the mountainous regions of, of Afghanistan. And uh, so this is such a norm. Aqliyat, you know, philosophical sciences and uh, intellectual sciences was something that's just part and parcel. Everyone would study. So he went and studied an extra four years on that. That type of knowledge is just really not available um, today in, in most places. So it's not about going after the university name. It's more about specifically the text and the books that are being taught there. And as both of them have very clearly mentioned, that they want to bring, uh, to, to, uh, to uh, bring back uh, the, uh, the old sciences back to our madrasa curriculum. So mashallah, he's teaching in Inc. in um, Baltimore. Mawlana Yusuf virtually teaches here from, from California to the students in Darussalam. And he has shared with me that I'm sure both of you have this idea that in the next few years, inshallah, have a postgraduate program for ulama in Islamic philosophy. Uh, for those who've graduated from the six, seven year program, like you have an ifta program where you specialize in fiqh or a hadith program where you specialize in hadith to have an, a multi-year uh, specialization course for graduates of the Darsan Nidhami to focus more on Islamic falsafa and kalam. Um, and we'll end with that, inshallah, with the, the, um, uh, the era we're living in of continuous questioning of deen and the fundamentals of deen. MashaAllah, yesterday's Mawlana Mateen's talk was outstanding. Alhamdulillah, beautiful foundation he explained. For those of you who came in this morning, I recommend definitely to go back and listen to last night's talk on, from our YouTube channel. Um, but it is really important for our Islamic, uh, students of the Islamic sciences to be well-grounded in, in, in a portion of this, at least basic understanding of philosophy and Islamic philosophy, to be able to simply, in this day and age, to uh, engage in a meaningful discussion with your professor at university, with your classmates at school, who try to create uh, a doubt within um, your belief system. Everywhere you're seeing Hafal and, and students of, of Islamic schools moving on to public schools, not even college, just public school level, unfortunately, uh, leaving the deen because they don't know how to answer simple, basic questions. They haven't thought out of the box. They're just, you know, we're Muslims because we're brown or we're, we're white or whatever the case may be, and that's it. Beyond that, they haven't thought about anything else. So when we, are, when we have such shallow level of understanding of Islam, it's just going to take a couple of questions by the professor to throw us off. And that's what we're seeing today, all over. At high school level too, people are leaving the deen. So um, I think learning aqidah, is what many of you raise your hand, is something super important. Alhamdulillah, here, June 22 onwards, we have our like, 16th to 17th year of, of teaching the deen intensive. Every year, alhamdulillah, since 2009, we've been doing the deen intensive here. So it's an amazing one-month program where you study the fundamentals of the deen, including aqidah. You, you might not be able to take a year off, but I, I encourage all of you to go back and see if you can wiggle a month out of your summer break from June 22 to study for a month, um, especially if you're a college student or a high school student. Um, you know, you know, I would say high school meaning seniors and above. Uh, take, take a month off and spend it here with us at Darussalam. If you've enjoyed this environment here, imagine staying in this environment for a month. So this is Monday through, Friday, Monday through Saturday. This year we're actually adding Saturday morning classes as well. So Monday through Saturday for a month, 
um, in this beautiful environment with your uh, colleagues, with your teachers. Not only are you studying, but you've got time to focus on your spirituality, focus on getting rid of bad habits, um, having some recreational opportunities outside uh, as well, traveling nearby areas and the different masajid in Chicago and doing programs, etc. So this is something I, I encourage all of you, inshallah, to consider for this year. If you can't do it this year, then consider next year. But before we head out to college, please, brothers and sisters who may be listening at home, please, before you move on to college and advance your career, take some time out to study the deen. You, you and I can't maybe do seven years right now. It's fine. Maybe you can't even do one year. But at least for your own deen, can we not spare a month? Right? I mean, a graduate, graduating student, I remember from the summer program, he came, met me at the back. He was a valid Victorian from the summer program. He met me in the back. He said, Sheikh, you know what? I just want to tell you, I want to thank you at my graduation of the summer program. If it wasn't for this program, I don't think I would remain Muslim on campus when I go back. This is what has saved my faith. I can tell you hundreds of people have graduated and have felt the same, had the same sentiments. So please benefit. Like Alhamdulillah, I said last night, this is not a circus in your town. And that is there for three days and it's gone. MashaAllah, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. We thank Allah that this place is here. It's, you want, after three days also, this place is here, inshaAllah. So there's programs after this program that you can enroll in. You can study online or on-site and benefit from those things. I ask Allah Azza that it will allow us to understand and appreciate what was just shared by our two, uh, mashaAllah, certified students of knowledge, mashaAllah, as he said. Uh, and Allah Azza put barakah in their t- teaching to their students and uh, put barakah in their ilm and their amal and allow them to um, do great work in their various opposite ends of the country, California and Baltimore. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow uh, many, many small and large Darussalams to pop up all over. And these are two da- different Darussalams uh, in different parts of the country. It's under Dar whatever, doesn't make a difference. But the knowledge that we learn from our teachers is being passed on. And that's what we want to see. We want to see small and large institutions. So if you care about your community, yesterday I was approached by a group from Florida, from a specific one, uh, one city in Florida, and saying, can we please find an imam? I said, no. <laughs> I said, I don't know where I'm going to find an imam for you. No, we don't want an imam. We want someone who will take ownership and leadership. I'm like, oh, that will make it even more difficult. Someone who will take the reins of our community, who cares about our community. I said, that's going to be more difficult. I said, as an institution, we have such a hard time finding good teachers. So, so difficult. We're ready to, to offer whatever we can. We'll fly out to different parts of the country. We'll recruit as much as we can. But it's so hard to find talented brothers and sisters who are, who are well-educated, who know how to connect with the community, who care about the kids, the students, who love Allah, who are strong in their deen, who know their science that they're teaching. It's very hard to find. So for us to just say, oh, let me, I'm offering 100,000, so I should find a good imam. Not necessarily. You can offer 200,000 too. You know, it's not about, it's not about the money. It's the fact that the resource, there's just so little supply of the good stuff. It's just so little supply of it. Um, so I gave them advice. I said, if you care about your community, go find me some of your most talented young men. Go now, after this retreat. Go find those boys, young men and women who are on their way to some great professional programs, who are going on to their law school, dental school, medical school, who are going into political science and whatnot, all those type of things. Um, I want you to go and go to their house and say, hey, we need you to please take a year off. Right? And if you need help, I'm, I'm ready for backup. <laughs> I said, I'll fly into your city and I'll sit down. And the way I spoke to him 10 years ago, I'll sit and speak to whoever you, you have in mind. Look at people who already have great qualities, who already have empathy for the ummah, who care about their community, who've got good character, who've got charisma as well, who can connect with the youth. 
MashaAllah, Mawlana Yusuf right now is an imam in, in, in the masjid. He was, alhamdulillah, telling me that Isha attendance, well, what, what you're telling me? Tafsir, three people, four people. They didn't have a tafsir program maybe after the imam left. Alhamdulillah, now they have 40. Within just a pattern of four weeks, five weeks or, or six weeks or eight weeks, tafsir attendance has increased on a weeknight. Then salah attendance has increased. That's exactly what happens when you have a proper scholar in a masjid. That your masjid, the sufuf increase. People want to study. Look at this group, man. It's mashallah. We slept two hours or less. And look at, I'm going to end. Don't think I'm going to keep on going. But I'm like, there's no one sleeping here. You guys are engaged. You're enjoying it. Right? Because you're like, we don't get this on an average Saturday morning back in where I come from. Alhamdulillah, you're loving it. That's how people are. If you provide good stuff, people will stay awake. People will listen. Hundreds of people will come for Fajr and listen. But it is our responsibility to provide good material. But that great scholarship is not just going to descend from the dome. It's not going to descend from the roof. We have to go find in our community who are those individuals. And say that you are our investment. We will support you. All those brothers who are listening online and those people who, are, who have jobs. It's our responsibility to find good students of knowledge and support them. They say, we will support your living expenses. Go and study. If you're married, we'll help you with that too. No problem. But the biggest thing, I'm telling you, more than trying to put an ad for $200,000 in, in a, some random Islamic magazine or, you, or whatnot, is that you invest money in students in your own community. And say, we will support you for the next 10 years. I tell you, it's, just, it's so easy. If people would listen. There's tons of wealth out there. There's tons of people who want to give. It's the responsibility of the administrators and the, uh, the people who are running these organizations to stand up and say, enough is enough. We are going to have our homegrown youth director. We're going to have our homegrown, not one, we're going to have three imams. One for the youth, one for the seniors, and one for the young adults and the middle-aged people. We're going to have a women section, we're going to have a female youth coordinator, we're going to have a female resident scholar. Why not? Our huge, our community is massive. Look at the crowds in Eid, man. We had some masjids had 20,000 over four or five Eids. Some masjids had 10,000 over three, four Eids. Our community is massive. We can't be foolish when it comes to of spending resources in the right place. The most important place to spend resources is are on human resources to find the best talented people within our community, both men and women, and pave the path for their Islamic education for them to come back and serve. That's something I want all of you to please take seriously. Whichever masjid you're coming from, even in Chicago, we have so many masjids that do not have an imam, that do not have an Islamic scholar, unfortunately. It's shameful, shameful, shameful for the city of Chicago to be in that state. The Juma Khutbah, they just have random people standing up until today. As of yesterday, we have people in mini masajid, there's 2,000 people there, and some random person. What is it? Every single Friday, it's a different fundraiser, a paid, hired fundraiser, who hasn't even studied probably even a month of Islamic education. Right? But some organization sent him and said, well, guess what? At least he can rile the crowd up. The people won't get mad at us that we don't have an imam. Khalas, let's have a fundraiser every week. That's the condition even in Chicago in some masjids. Imagine the rest of the country. So you all have to take this seriously. Go back to your masjids. Go back to your community. So we have to find individuals in our community. And inshallah, like Dallas, alhamdulillah, just took one or two brothers. They said, you know what? That's it. We're going to change up things here. So alhamdulillah, they've offered... Uh, uh, they've already one brothers one, one scholarship has already been used, but they said another two full seven-year scholarships from Dallas for Dallas students only. Seven-year program, Hajj afterwards. And two-year postgraduate studies anywhere else in the country. A full nine-year paid program from Dallas. 
But they're saying, we need people from Dallas to apply for this. People who are obviously in need. If someone has the, their, their parents have the resources, they have the wealth, okay, then you don't need to apply for that. Alhamdulillah, let your dad and mom get the ajar of, of supporting you. But if you don't have the means, well, there's people. Reach out to me. I'll connect you with, you know, with, with the whole application process and whatnot. But every city needs to have that. We have so many cities here represented. Go back to your communities and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come up with a scholarship fund. And then we're not just going to randomly just people chill in Dar es Salaam. No, we're going to say, hey, hey, if, you are, if you're interested, apply. Let our team over here go through the rigorous uh, you know, criteria of making sure this student has what it takes to be your savior, <laughs> to be the savior of your community. And then inshallah, go back. And, and within a few years, you'll have a one-year grad and another few years before you know it. How does seven years pass by, huh? Real quick. So before you know it, you'll do that, inshallah. Does that make sense? Is that a game plan? You're all going to work on this? Inshallah. Go back to your communities and, and go work on this immediately, inshallah. Um, I want all of you, just as we come to an end, is that inshallah, we have um, the way these young ulama graduated. Alhamdulillah, June 18th weekend. I want all of you to come back, please. Watch 24 students graduate from the seven-year program. Boys and girls, it's going to be an awesome inspiration for your sisters, your moms, um, your daughters, and yourselves, boys here, men, to watch ulama after spending seven years at Darussalam, graduating, listening to their talks, and witnessing the final hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari being taught with a un... Uh, uh, you know, with, with a chain going back to, right back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, uninterrupted chain back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that's on the January, June 17th or 18th weekend. Um, we will also have their, uh, the graduating class, the 11th batch of the one-year students. We have approximately, you know, 80 or 90 students, alhamdulillah, between the boys and girls this year. Uh, we have multiple sections. They will all be graduating on the, the same weekend. Saturday is a graduation for the Hidd and the one-year program. And the Khatm al-Bukhari and the Qaraat Saba and Ashra is on Sunday. Please plan your trips now and invite your family and friends who couldn't make it this weekend. Tell them to come that weekend. Number two, we have time for, we're going to pray four rakat, two and two. And the rewards are mentioned in different hadith. One is the one who sits after Salat al-Fajr in the, in, in the same place doing dhikr, remembrance of Allah, um, what we're doing here. Alhamdulillah, if you perform Salat al-Turaka'ah, after sunrise, Allah Azza wa Jalla will make that a means of fulfilling all his needs of the day. Another two rakah, Allah Azza wa Jalla will grant him an accepted, a reward of an accepted Hajj and Umrah. What we call an honorary reward of an accepted Hajj and Umrah. So do not leave without performing those four rakah, two and two. You can recite any verses, any ayats in, in there. And make a short dua or a long dua before you go back to bed. And then inshallah, 10 o'clock for those who are sleeping here, we have uh, breakfast. And at, at around... 10 to 10.30, 10.45, finish up. And we'll have an awesome, super engaged. If you are this engaged now, I can only imagine how engaged you'll be. At 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about what? Marriage. See, everyone even knows about it. So it's going to be a really interesting talk. We have a panel of three ulama. We have a panel of three scholars. And we're going to allow you to be asking questions throughout the panel, through Slido. I think the questions are awesome already set up. It's not going to be a talk. It's going to be a panel with Monana Mustafa, who's graduating this year who's married with, mashallah, father of two, and then two scholars, one from Mawlana Uthman Akhtar from here, and one Mawlana Hamza from St. Louis. Uh, so please be here, invite your family and friends to join that. And then at 3.15, we, uh, after Dhuhr, the schedule is going on all day, but I want to highlight one big massive issue today is gender interaction. What are the boundaries of that? What's right? What's wrong? What's cultural? What's Islamic? Super important talk at 3.15 is a workshop. Make sure uh, you're not in the canteen at that time and you're here as well. Zakallah khairah. Thank you so much for being such an attentive audience. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow you all to gain more than you expect from this weekend and accept your sacrifices. 
Subhanallah wa hamdihi, subhanakallahu wa hamdik, nashadu wa la ilahi illa ant, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.